Up until this point in our show, we have only ever covered flights of fancy. Horror, naturalish, courts the gruesome and the extreme. However, no matter how verisimilitudinous the nightmare becomes, it is only ever that. A nightmare. A bad dream. Just one moment away from the peace and safety of the waking world. This is different. This is real. Or at least that's what I was going to say with this pricey. The act of killing denies us the harmony of nightmares. It also denies us the harmony of flat realism. This isn't the trite reality of facts, statistics, or the ideological servitude of moralism. This is reality exposed through fantasy. This is the reality from which we flee into the warm embrace of familiar, fictitious terrors. As Slavoj Žižek correctly asserts, this is the reality that we use illusion to conceal ourselves from. However, the boundaries between the real and fiction are contested. This is a conflict zone where ideologies wage war over meaning. The act of killing doesn't move to a quick condemnation of evil men and their acts of terror. It lets us linger. It reminds us that there is no nightmare greater than the one in which we stew. The one we ignore. We can go no further as film critics. We must cast aside so try to commentary and pick up the mantle of film historians, theorists, cultural archaeologists. The act of killing deserves nothing less. Sit down with us as we discuss this film and allow the act of killing to continue the work it has begun within us. Welcome to the show, everybody. Uh, a little different this week from, from what we normally do, but we are talking about, I think, uh, an incredibly important uh, piece of documentary filmmaking, an incredibly important piece of art. Um, so I think before we get into the kind of discourse of it, let us let's kind of lay out some facts for people. Let's 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 start at the very beginning with maybe the kind of basic questions um, that anybody uh, coming to this for the first time probably needs to, to needs to have an understanding of, which is the who, the what, the where, the when. And the why. Um, so, so, so Ash, who who are we talking about, right? What what's what is the context for this uh, for this film? So the the film is the first. Uh, I guess it has the honor of being the first documentary we are to cover on this show. It was uh, conceived and created by a documentarian known as uh, known as Joshua Oppenheimer. Um, this film is kind of, it's got a star-studded documentarian cast, or crew rather. Um, it was produced by Errol Morris and Werner Herzog. So one important thing that I think we should address right off the bat, and that'll kind of set the tone for a lot of this, is that um, this film was co-directed by uh, Christian Sin and Anonymous. And the mm -hmm. film itself uh, features 49 Anonymous credits. All of those anonymous credits were Indonesian uh, film production staff that were afraid of violent reprisals and the threat of death on their lives. And so they chose to omit being credited for their work in this film. Yeah, this is a portion of history that maybe quite a lot of people don't know about and certainly don't like to talk about. In, uh, in 1965 to 66, uh, across huge swathes of Indonesia, there were mass killings of... Uh, Anyone, anyone accused of, or anyone who was, or who was accused of being a communist, um, this uh, generally could include farm farmers, 
uh, people who were in a trade union, uh, people who were actually communists, people who maybe only knew communists, uh, people who were students, uh, people who were journalists. Uh, general statistics around uh, the exact number of casualties is, is at this point almost, uh, historically speaking, is almost impossible to ascertain. Uh, but as a conservative estimate, we're probably talking around a million people uh, who were murdered by uh, paramilitary groups and the Indonesian military in the space of a year. Uh, and this is the story that Joshua Oppenheimer uh, and uh, his co-director, Christine Sen, and the, the uh, phenomenally brave uh, Indonesian production crew were trying to kind of tell. So do you want to kind of just set up for people how exactly they decided to try and explore this history? Yeah, I think that this is one of the most interesting things. And I think it ties it ties back into Joshua Oppenheimer as well, because it's worth pointing out that Oppenheimer as a documentarian hasn't been grandstanding on this work. Um, he seems very focused on making sure that the story itself was being heard and being told and less of his position as some kind of heroic figure, which is quite refreshing. Mm -hmm. uh, so the way that Joshua Oppenheimer tells it is he originally set out and was uh, going to create a documentary about the lives of some Indonesian farm workers who are attempting to unionize. Uh, uh, unions are illegal uh, under the under Indonesian law currently. And so it was a it was an effort fraught with danger and suspense. But through the course of starting that work, he began to uh, hear stories about the genocide, these mass killings, uh, the the military coup that that shapes the current Indonesian political climate, and he then began to get in touch with the genocidaires themselves, the 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 people behind these killings, and he in interviewed them one by one by one, and then he had interviewed uh, dozens of them, and then he meets a man named Anwar Congo. Again, for people who haven't seen it, how would you describe Anwar Congo? I am just going to read the opening title card of the movie. Meet Anwar Congo, grandfather, national hero, former executioner in the genocide of one million people. That is that is our introduction to Anwar in, in this story. The, the kind of frame that the documentary is built around is that Joshua Oppenheimer and his crew are giving Anwar the tools, uh, the filmic tools to recreate his memories of these killings and his experiences leading one of the paramilitary gangs that led the genocide. And and yeah, we should we should we should make it clear that that Congo is presented as all of these things. Uh, simultaneously. In the course of the film, you learn that he's pro probably personally killed hundreds of people, maybe maybe a thousand. Uh, the right-wing paramilitary organizations and uh, state-level and even national politicians uh, treat him as a, as a hero. Uh, he's He has an extended family. There are scenes of him with his uh, grandchildren looking after ducklings. Uh and 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 we get this this kind of meta film. We get because this is what the act of killing is, right? It's a meta film, and within that you have you have what they allow Anwar Congo and his friends uh, to do. 
And we will we will get into that in much more detail when we talk about Eichmann in Jerusalem uh, towards the end of the episode. Yeah. And I, I, I guess maybe maybe what we should talk about then is like, what does Congo do and why do you think Oppenheimer and the rest of um, the production and directorial team made the choice to allow him to do that? So I think I'm just going to paraphrase Joshua Oppenheimer's own words here. He said in several several interviews, and I think also his masterclass on the documentary, you, you know, he he interviewed uh, dozens of leading figures in this genocide, current government leaders in in the Indonesia, and then he comes across Anwar Congo, and out of everyone that he interviewed, Anwar was the only man who seemed haunted by what he did. And everyone else was, to I guess to paraphrase Oppenheimer here, uh, doing the Eichmann in Jerusalem thing. Mm-hmm. Um, Anwar was the only one who was still kind of in the moment. And that, that's what drew Oppenheimer into this story, into this kind of perspective for the documentary. I, I, I think people may have heard of this because there was some controversy around the film being nominated for an Oscar. And the kind of argument that people make was... And we'll get, we'll we'll get more into what the film does, but the the argument that some people made was that the film kind of glamorizes uh, unrepentant mass murderers, um, and I I basically wanted to know what you think about this idea of like how how do you confront somebody with the truth of what they've done because it would have been super easy maybe even natural for for Oppenheimer to be like. You do. You did all of this horrible stuff in the past. Like forcibly confront the subject with it. Um, but what do you think about the fact that basically they they kind of give their subjects sort of enough rope to hang themselves with, as it were? Yeah. So I, I, what I would say to that, um, if if critics thought that this was glam- glamorizing the genocidaires in Indonesia, I don't know what movie they watched. They they watched some other film that I that is not the act of killing because if there's anything this movie doesn't do it's that yeah and I think I think before we before we get any further into talking about the film itself we need to talk about the historical context of this film and and kind of set that up one of the one of the specifics of this film that I think is really important is that uh, and one of the ideas that the film focalizes is that the events that kind of happen intra the context of this film. Is that like within Indonesia, uh, the the government has done everything in its power to make people forget that this genocide happened 60 years ago. Yeah. And and outside of Indonesia, no one knows that this happened. Or or I should say nearly no one knows this happened. It's not common knowledge. It's not a a discussed global event, even though it was a genocide on on an unthinkable scale. And in order to talk about this historical context, we need to begin our conversation talking about the fucking Dutch. Oh yeah, oh yeah. It's about time. Where where do you want to begin? Uh, so the Dutch, I think, um, have a, had have had a very successful uh, rebranding campaign within the last hundred or so years. Um, it's it's a, especially and I guess in a post World War II context, right? Like the Netherlands um, and like a lot of Central European nations have repositioned themselves to be like these arbiters of an unbiased and balanced justice. You know, the Hague is in the Netherlands, right? Like the, the, these people are neutral in all conflicts. 
They just mm-hmm. they just make their clogs and they make their cocoa. And wait, where does that chocolate come from? The Dutch are like many all European nations, historically um, colonialist. Uh, you know, they've had expansionist imperial military forces. The Dutch uh, were formerly in control of Indonesia up until the Indonesian independence was won in the fifties. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, actually, the Dutch uh, after after the end of World War II, the Dutch returned mm-hmm. uh, in a quote unquote police action to yep. Indonesia, and I think it's incredibly important that we situate this in the history of both colonialism and neo-colonialism, right? Mm-hmm. Um, colonialism, which was is what built the wealth of so many of the na- uh, so many nations, both of our nations included, and neo-colonialism, which we'll get more into when we talk about. Uh, direct UK and USA involvement in some of the uh, kind of worst, most violent anti-communist um, purges of the Cold War. So uh, it, by the 50s, the Indonesian um, independence movement has achieved uh, success. And I think it's important that we kind of put this in the context of the uh, emergent um anti-imperialist and anti-colonialist struggles that are happening worldwide. So there are there are multiple colonialist empire projects that are uh, being dismantled with, with some successes and some failures and some uh, victories and some losses throughout the 20th century. But like what's happening in Indonesia is, is you know, uh, an echo of things that are happening in uh, Latin America, uh, in Central America, in places like Algeria places like Liberia, there is a kind of worldwide, uh, a kind of emerging, uh, what what gets referred to at the time as a third world movement. Um, you know, there are various congresses that the um, Indonesian um, uh, leaders of the independence movement are very involved in. Um, so, like, this is not an isolated thing, is the, is, is the only point that I'm trying to make, that we're trying to see the, co- the historical context of, Indo- uh, of Indonesian independence in the in the wider global context of a kind of broader anti-colonialist struggle. Yeah, and it, 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 is, it is completely woven into this kind of geopolitical moment, right? Uh, so we have, uh, for, for those who might uh, want a refresher, uh, in the parlance of like first, second, and third world, the first world is the West, America, Australia, and Japan, the second world uh, was the USSR, and the third world is just I don't know everybody else. Um, mm-hmm. And th- this this emerges like these conflicts all emerge kind of simultaneously. And at this particular point, there are there are countless anti-colonialist struggles happening at this moment, right? Like, in a lot of these are also countries that are exploring communism and allegiance with the USSR, even though Stalin is encouraging a lot of these countries to put down their arms and stop resisting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so it's a very it's a very complicated moment. Uh, China was perhaps another one of these we could throw into the list. This is this is the big kind of struggle, right? You have you have uh, among a lot of these former um, uh, colonized nations and these newly independent nations, you have um, a lot of kind of geopolitical tensions between to to whom are they going to be aligned? Yes. At the time, which is either with the USSR. Uh, or with the um, United States, and it's not a surprise that this is the time that you see the the emergence of the non-aligned movement, which are in, um, 
generally former former colonized nations which say they have no interest in aligning with either Mm -hmm. there are a lot of um former uh newly independent states that choose to align more closely especially in asia with uh with either the usr ussr or with uh mao's china um and of course there are uh various ways that that um america particularly would try and intervene in the political structures of individual countries to ensure that they were kept away from choosing to align with the Soviet Union uh, or with communist China. And that I think is the parallel to this, because initially uh, America, while while of course never in support of any uh, former colonized space regaining its independence, was a bit neutral towards Indonesia and what happened there, largely because Indonesia wasn't super committed on being aligned with the USSR. Um, However, what also is happening at this time is that various political events within the United States are moving America towards possibly what we can consider the height of American anti-communism. Yeah, we've got uh, uh, the House on American Activities Committee is starting to materialize. We have um, anti-communist efforts in the United States being ramped up. Um, We have uh, the idea of Soviet containment in the Cold War is starting to formally become a a massive geopolitical consideration Mm -hmm. while Indonesia is catching its feet after winning its independence. And one of the major turning points that happens is that so uh, post-World War II, you have a lot of pockets of communism throughout all of Europe. And a lot of these were like guerrillas and rebel movements who fought the Nazis back. And Greece is a great example of this. Um, but American forces combined with the British, combined with kind of this first world entity that has emerged, uh, does pretty much everything in their power to put these people down, including aligning with the Nazis or the former Nazis, rather. Yeah, uh, Greece is actually a super good example of this. So there was a uh, a a large, well organized militant communist movement in Greece uh, for a very long time um, that made un- unimaginable sacrifices against the fighting the Nazis. Uh, in the uh, aftermath of of uh, of the war, when Europe was a kind of Cold War battlefield, you had huge amounts of resources poured into. Mm-hmm. Um, the neoconservative, uh, almost fascist right wing uh, of Greek politics. You had the military encouraged to to uh, be as viciously anti-democratic as possible because communists uh, were phenomenally popular in their countries and not just across Europe, but across huge swathes of the globe. Um, Indonesia had an incredibly successful communist party. Uh, it had been started by Indonesians and um uh, the Dutch. It, it was uh, kind of broadly anti-Stalinist. It was very interested in electoralist politics. Um, but the 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 really kind of striking thing about the 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 Communist Party in Indonesia was it had the reputation for one being on the side of land reform, particularly to farmers and peasants, and two uh, being not nearly as corrupt as every other political party. <laughs> Uh, so at, at one point, there were three million members of the Communist Party in Indonesia, and it was, um, I think, easily the second largest um, kind of electoral block. Yes, so, yes. Um, I think from what I was reading, uh, it was the largest outside of uh, the USSR and China. Yeah, 
Yeah, it was a it was a phenomenally successful Communist Party because not only did it have um, kind of local cadres, uh, usually among students and kind of trade unionists, it was affiliated to lots of trade unions, so it had a presence in lots of workplaces. And the Communist Party in Indonesia had a reputation for solving your problems. Um, like if can't, you can't have, have that. No, you can't have that, right? You can't, like, you know, you can't have poor people feeling like they have some political agency because that's what happens when you vote for communists. No, and I, think, I, I think I think it's I think it's time to rain on the parade a little bit and talk about the 30 September movement uh, and then kind of the events that I, I guess to to phrase it very directly lead up to the creation of one of the most chilling pieces of cinema I have ever seen. Yeah. Um, so so what would you, so what would you what would you say uh, are kind of like the immediate events that precipitate these this genocide? Okay, so things move very quickly. Um, thirty the thirtieth thirty September movement. Um, their exact nature is still very contested, but uh, I think it's about five or six of the top of the country's top generals are abducted, um, and all of them are murdered. Mm-hmm. Uh, Vin- Vincent Bevins in their excellent book, uh, The Jakarta Method, says that this was probably the product of a kind of fear in the military that there was going to be a right-wing coup. So these countries' top generals were seen as being not terribly sympathetic to the president, um, and uh, they were abducted, they ended up dead. This leads to a massive constitutional crisis. There is there is a coup, the president is gradually stripped, stripped of all power, there's a military dictatorship, and then the military goes up, goes about systematically exterminating as many communists as they can find. And anyone who can even be tangentially associated with them is murdered as well. Yeah, and it's also there's also an ethnic cleansing that, that, that happens on top of all of this. The, the uh, genocidaires of this also go after the ethnic Chinese that are in Indonesia at the time. Yeah. Um, uh, precisely because if you're Han Chinese, you're seen as being uh, a communist, right? Mm-hmm. You're seen as being, and it doesn't matter. Like, and even today, it's like the idea of communism is 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 it's anathema. You can't kind of really talk about it, right? We'll get into that <laughs> most assuredly. So we should. Uh, I, I think uh, one of oh, it's 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 so hard to just retain myself to the historical purview for this section of the show. But we should uh, perhaps bring the conversation a little bit closer to home and and talk about uh, the land of the free and jolly old England. Uh, oh, oh boy, should we? There is. Um, okay, so where do you want to start? Do you want do you want to do you want to cover England, and I will cover America's involvement in this? Actually, if you don't mind, I want I want to start with George Kennan. Okay, so for 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 people who don't know, who is George Kennan? Oh, for everybody playing the home game, George Kennan is essentially, it's hard, I don't want to do great man history and pin things down to individuals because there are so many moving pieces, but George Kennan is one of the most influential figures in creating what we now call the Cold War. Mm -hmm. Um, George Kennan was the architect of the idea of Soviet containment. Uh, the the idea that in order to preserve the kind of first world, as it were, uh, the USSR needed to be locked inside of Russia and never allowed to go outside. Mm-hmm. Um, George Kennan, in interviews after the fact, would say that he always talked about these ideas as a political policy and not necessarily a militaristic one. However, 
uh, hindsight is twenty twenty. There were there were also plenty of people uh, very high up in the United States intelligence networks who did see it as a military problem. Uh, uh, literally everyone <laughs> besides George Kennan was like, "Oh yeah, this is a great military strategy, bro." Um, but it, it is worth pointing out, I guess, that uh, in two, so George Kennan dies in two thousand five, and in two thousand three, um, he he tries to do a bunch of uh, articles in the media and press conferences about the the horrifying overlaps between the mistakes of his early career and how we're starting the war in Iraq. Yeah. Uh, and uh, go figure, um, no one listens to him. He can no longer get front page uh, publications in the New York Times like he used to. It seems that when you were against the war, people stopped caring all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, what are the odds? What are the odds of that happening? <laughs> so so uh, who's, who, who's, who's next on a whirlwind tour of uh, how, how the first world got involved? Oh, well, we should talk about... Uh, we should talk about the CIA because <laughs> the CIA, boy, howdy, boy, boy, howdy. Um, you know, we should talk about the fact that there were there were dedicated uh, units within the former OSS, uh, the very new CIA that were dedicated to political destabilization by any means of any nation that might uh, be a strategically valuable on a geopolitical global scale, or b. Uh, get a little too interested in some of that gosh darn communism, um, like the the big the big example of something that we, of what we might be talking about is uh, Operation Ajax, or or as the Brits called it Operation Boot, which was the uh, nineteen fifty three Iranian coup d'état, uh, which overthrew the democratically elected prime minister and and reinforced the the rule of the Shah, um, mm-hmm. and was was also a chance to. Uh, uh, basically make sure that any Iranian communist movement was kind of crushed in its infancy. And that kind of stuff was organized by the Dulles brothers, so John Foster Dulles and Alan Dulles. Uh, the amazingly named Kermit Roosevelt Jr. One of those Roosevelts, um, but he he was a spy uh, and a saboteur. Um, and it was a regular thing, right? The, 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 the idea of the CIA kind of overthrowing elections or interfering with elections or seeking to destabilize politics uh, internal to a country is a regular and repeated feature throughout the 1950s and 1960s. Um, One of the kind of most heinous things uh, that happened is uh, there is evidence that suggests U.S. embassies would draw up lists of communists or suspected communists and would hand them over to the military. Um, This happened in Iraq in 1963 um in what's uh, called the Ramadan revolution um which overthrew the prime minister um led by the Ba'athist party um and it happened in Guatemala in 1954 witnessed by a a young Argentinian doctor called uh, Ernesto Guevara It's a familiar name is he, I is he an important we'll... figure in history? <laughs> I, I, I wonder if we'll hear from him again. <laughs> yes, this is an important name. Write it down. It'll come up on next week's quiz. So, so when we're talking about Indonesia's genocidal mass killing of up to a million people who were, who were either um, accused, suspected, associated, or just were communists or, um, uh, you know... This, this is what we're talking about. We're talking about this as being part of a broader 
Um, but uh, we should probably rethink what, what we mean by the Cold War, because the Cold War implies uh, equality of conflict on both sides, right? But the yes. Cold War mm-hmm. was actually a vicious, sustained, brutally violent uh, murdering of the global left. That's what and it was. It, and it was also, it's only cold if your perspective is the first world. For everybody else, it was very much a not kind of Cold War. Precisely. Um, uh, I I'd, I'd already talked about the Jakarta method, but there's this incredible moment right near the end of the book where Vincent Bevins, who is a journalist, goes to goes back to Indonesia in the present day and asks about, you know, uh, h- how did America win the Cold War? And the person that he's interviewing just responds, you killed us. Amer- America, we, we live in the world that was won by 20th century American capitalism under the Cold War. And they did it by murdering as many people as it took. Yes. And, and all of this is, is aided and abetted by the UK and Western Europe. Uh, yep. Um, the, the CIA was brand new and they learned a hell of a lot from the country that had the longest running and most well-established intelligence network, which was the Brits. Yes, uh, we learned this all from you, Dad. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, precisely. And a lot of it was done with the expressed aim of securing the financial interests of American, Anglo-American business interests. Yeah. And I think think this ties us us back around to the Dutch. Oh uh, yes. In in our notes in our notes uh we have quaintly named this the Dutch a reprise. <laughs> <laughs> um but it's to to quote George Lucas it's like poetry. It rhymes. Um unfortunately mm-hmm. in this case. Mm-hmm. Um so uh fast fast forward our clock here to 2016. Um in 2016 uh the International Criminal Court at The Hague in the Netherlands, so Dutch territory. Um, officially declares Indonesia responsible for a horrendous genocide in a non-legal, non-binding statement. I mean, what, like, what what can you say? Like, uh, this is this is a kind of heinous mass murder, which is just it's not spoken about on a national level, and is now not really prosecutable in any serious way on an international level. And I think that this, this, that is probably the best thing that could have been said right now, because this is the perfect pivot into the movie. There's a, so one of, one of the genociders in the movie, his last name is Zulkadri. He, he says that Um, he's being interviewed by Oppenheimer in a, in a car as they're driving. And, and uh, Zulkadri's statement is just basically like, it's done. What what could ever be done now? And if I'm tried in the Hague, then I'll be even more famous, you know. Mm-hmm. He'll, you know, because these people. Uh, one of the things that Joshua Oppenheimer has said in interviews that has really stuck with me about this documentary is that um, a lot of people have asked him, like, "Oh, well, why didn't you just do this at home about the Nazis? You know, you could have done the same documentary in Europe, but with with a former Nazi officer." right? Like they're still around. You could still interview some of them and do this. And his response has always been, well, the Nazis lost, you know, like, like, yes, the decks got shuffled and a lot of Nazis became officials in various European and North American governments and escaped and stuff. 
but the Nazis as a political party and as a government lost power. You know, mm-hmm. they were they were dissolved at the end of World War Two. The the right wing military extremists and paramilitary forces won in Indonesia. They're still in power there. Yeah, and this I think cuts against a lot of um a lot of the critiques of the film that say because this is what people said to him. Why 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 are you doing this? And it's like because no nothing is being talked about, right? And I think it's it's an incredibly damning response because it, it kind of under like you can't it's not it's not glamorizing. You know, these people won. And mm-hmm. as they say as they say themselves, right? What what can you do? What you can do is you can uh this is this is why historical materialism is so important, right? This is why having an accurate understanding of history is so vital for any kind of political struggle because if it isn't talked about, if it isn't known and understood, then you are completely disempowered. Yes, I, I think uh so to to quote Errol Morris, one of the uh producers of this, a legendary documentarian in his own right. Um, of this film, he said, the past is inside us and it can be brought back to life. Mm-hmm. And that is one of the things that this film is attempting to do. And I think it succeeds in a unnervingly successful way. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think it raises some really fascinating questions about things like the ethics of representation. Like, what does it mean? This is a really old debate, but like, what does it mean to point a camera at something? And um, what this shows is not kind of like just a litany of facts, but it kind of it, it it's there's a there's a phrase that Oppenheimer uses called the documentary of the imagination, mm-hmm. um, which I think is I think is 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 so interesting and so kind of powerful because if you film this like a very straightforward historical documentary, you would not have the same this would not have the same kind of impact. Like we'll get to the ending, and the ending is is there are so many scenes that we've spoken about about this film, which genuinely had us both horrified. Um, at, and nothing is happening on screen except you know an old man is maybe talking, and, and, and I'm like, th- this is for me. This is one of the most like unsettling things about this movie because like all they're doing is horror movie special effects. In yeah. low low budget, like these are Z movie effects that we're watching, right? These are effects that you could do with a YouTube tutorial in your backyard today. And like nothing I haven't seen hundreds of times by now. And like I had to pause this movie several times, like call friends while watching it. Like this movie is like, like unrelentingly grinding. You know, yeah. there, there's no safe haven in the act of killing, right? There's no way out of this movie. There's only a way through it. Well, I guess, I guess that's a that's a good question. That's a good point for us to for me to kind of ask you a question. Um, what are we watching? Is, is the act of killing a horror movie, and if so, why? I think I think this is this is so I mean like you and I are both scholars of the gothic and in gothic studies we have a somewhat irreverent saying that you know we I've seen, I've seen presentations I've given presentations on a lot of stuff that is tangentially gothic I've given presentations on Minecraft and Pokemon and like all across the board and you know like the the kind of the stock response is well everything's gothic when you think about it 
And this is the same applies to this movie and horror, but I think things get a lot more interesting when we kind of consider the fact that horror is is the vehicle through which Anwar is is living these memories and and, and recreating them, and they're not. We'll we'll, we'll get into. <laughs> I keep saying we'll get. There's so much that we have to get into. There's just a gigantic, we'll get into that, hanging over this episode. But um, Anwar Congo is extremely influenced by cinema, gangster movies, action movies, right? He he was part of a, of a gang called the, the Movie Gangsters, right? Like, like, that's his background. And it's unsettling how it translates into the movie, right? Yeah. It, it's it's really unsettling, and I think the thing, the thing that the, the horror emerges from the juxtaposition, right? Of you know what the facts are, and then you sit down with this gray-haired old man and listen to him tell you stories about how when he was younger he would go to the movies and they would scalp tickets to get in to see Elvis shows mm-hmm. or Elvis films, and would come out dancing in the street because of the music. And then in the very next sentence, he'll say something like, oh, and across the way, that was uh, that was the office where we used to murder people by putting a table leg on their neck and then jumping up and down on the table. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and it's that juxtaposition. It's that it's that it's it's like a personal history. And then you peel away the kind of narrative of like autobiography and you see something bit much bigger and much, much more violent kind of teeming away. And there's nothing more gothic than the repressed past. Yeah. And and this movie is using the kind of visual and cinema narratological language of horror to to get these ideas through to us. And and I think, you know, you're completely correct. A flat documentary, a the, the kind of history channel version of this where it's like in 1953, the following events took place, and it's like still shots of some pictures, would not have conveyed one tenth of the reality that this film is capable of. And I think there's a so at the beginning of the movie, um, the uh, you you have a bunch of title cards kind of explaining the, a brief 101 of the history that leads up to this moment, and then what the conceit of this documentary is. And we're sitting in like a, a public square in a city, and then there's there's like some skate ramps in front of us, and and at uh, at the after you're like maybe three to five minutes of just silence and reading just this horrible history, um, a guy on a BMX bike just slams down onto one of those ramps and lands. <laughs> the movie opens with a jump scare. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I jumped I at that. It was the most effective jump scare I've seen in a while. Absolutely. This is this is this is a horror movie. And I think we we have talked about this a little bit on the show, but I actually think this is the reason I'm so glad that we're doing this because we've said kind of quite quite consistently that horror has a kind of ethics, right? Um for for people who are very into horror horror, it actually is a kind of way that we deal with the nightmare of the world. Um and there is this is a moment where you go actually this is how how do we deal with horror when it isn't just contained to the screen but is the very constituent stuff of history itself 
Um, and I think that's what makes this such an incredible piece of work. And and I can already hear uh, our de- our detractors out there saying something to the effect of, "Oh, you lower the act of killing by relegating it to the generic bounds of horror." And and to that I say, "Oh no no no! We we instead we do the opposite. We do the inverse. We lift horror to its proper place." Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But this is not just a horror movie. This is also this is also a documentary film. Um, and it, and it's both of those simultaneously. Now you mentioned, you mentioned the kind of the, the all-star cast of, of the people who helped get this film, uh, towards seeing the light of day. But I think we should probably talk about Werner Herzog just a little bit. I, I have brought up Werner Herzog on so many episodes of this show just to shoehorn him in and now, now that I have an actual excuse to talk about Werner Herzog, we have too much other stuff to talk about for me to really get into Werner Herzog. <laughs> but, like, so I think there, there's an anecdote that I love retelling that Werner Herzog also loves retelling. It's, it's a, sorry, he was at a, uh, con- a convention, a conference of other documentarians, and there was a panel of a bunch of well-respected documentarians, and they're all talking about how you need to be objective. You need to remove yourself from what you're filming. Right. Like you're there to render an objective truth. You're not supposed to be part of what is going on. And and Werner Herzog uh, boils over with rage, runs up to the stage uh, and, and shouts something to the effect of we are not the flies on the wall. We are the hornets that sting. Um, and, and I think like that, if you've ever seen any of Werner Herzog's documentary work, like that is the guiding ethos of all of it. He is active and engaged in the meaning making that is going on in the screen. It is not flat and detached. And the, the influence on that in Oppenheimer's work here is, is just powerful. There's a, there's a, there's a very Herzogian uh, concept called ecstatic truth, um, which he writes about in a kind of speech turn. Well, it's, it's an essay that was a speech. And he says that only in the state of sublimity does something deeper become possible, a kind of truth that is the enemy of the merely factual, ecstatic truth. I call it. Um, this is this is this is a very Herzog documentary in in lots of ways, right? Yes, and I know I wanted to save this for the end, but I think we might need to talk about it now because I, I this would have been like the fourth time I said we'll get to this. But I think that is so important inside of what this documentary is attempting to do, right? In the Precy, I was talking about how this documentary is still doing work inside of us. And I, that is a very intentionally used religious language in that, right? Like this is, this is a very numinous documentary, right? There's, there's something larger and horrific in the grandeur of this film. And it, one of those things is that it, it, it has that, uh, ecstatic ecstatic truth right like it has that energy to it and and for me like this resisting of the merely factual makes us unable to categorize this film because it doesn't fit into any of the acceptable ways we have of making a documentary film or making a horror film it it refuses those bounds and this this is so important for what this film does because if this was just a flat condemnation of some evil men who did an evil thing in, at a certain point in history, 
uh, it could be lauded and applauded, but ultimately it would be relegated to a list of other documentaries who achieve the same thing. But instead, this this documentary makes us sit with that. It, it makes us sit with the fact that this is ongoing, sit with the fact that, you know, like within the histories of our countries, there is culpability for these evils. Mm-hmm. And that is that is so much more powerful than just a flat factual restatement. Yeah, exactly. And I think thinking thinking it through the concept of ecstatic truth and this idea of understanding it as a, you know, a documentary of the imagination or as a horror film actually gives expression and articulation to the power that this has. Um but the, there are also films within the film. So they they tell Anwar Congo that he can do whatever he wants. Uh he can kind of create restage his memories uh however however he would like and there are uh, a multiplicity of different genres shall we say um that he decides he wants to put things in so we don't have just a kind of talking head segment we have various kind of genre bits to this film um and what do you think about how this how this film kind of explores those genres so we have we have a haunting movie, we have a Western, we have two separate musicals and a third musical number that was cut from all published versions of this film. And we also have a war movie and then kind of like a gangster noir, like a, like a rat pack kind of movie. And like, so Herzog in an interview about this film uh, makes the rather contentious claim that cinema is bad at doing surrealism which uh, I think I think Herzog maybe missed <laughs> with that one a little bit. But he goes on to say that this is probably the single most successful surrealist film ever created. Mm. And I, I would be inclined to agree, and it's largely on the back of these generic moments. They're, they're, like, they're like dream sequences, almost, right? They're like... It's, it's these, this... Because... You can't you can't talk about genre without sort of revealing quite a lot of yourself, uh, and like it's very clear that these genres are invested with a kind of lot of uh, both legitimacy, but also they kind of give give shape to Anwar Congo uh, and his various friends' sense of who they are. Right? It's how. It's how they make sense of their experiences is they filter it through these generic lenses because it links their actions to tropes and figures of cinema. So like uh, the Western cowboy is this, is this kind of like frontiersman who does the, the kind of difficult things that have to be done. Um, and you have that kind of horrible moment where you see uh, Anwar uh, recreate a strangling uh, with a lasso. And it's just, just um, almost unwatchably grim but it's like that's the that's that's what these genres are for right that they, they, they're not just they're not just kind of aesthetics it's like this is how these people see themselves we we talk a lot on this show about the kind of the ephemeral boundary between cinema and reality between what's happening on the screen and what's happening in our lives y- you know and like that that boundary isn't a a hard border that must be broken to be crossed it's it's a 
diffuse substrate through which both elements bleed back and forth into each other. And Anwar Congo is one of the best examples of this, in, in part because like there are whole segments in this movie where he talks about how he would be watching like a gangster movie from America with his friends and on, on their way out, they would be like, oh, you know, like that one scene where he killed a guy. Let's go do that. That seemed like a good way to just murder a bunch of people. And then they would. Yeah, right. There's this, there's the, it's, they kind of go, at one point, An- Anwar is like, oh, why do people, why do people go and see these films? They do it because they want to see the action. Um, and that was their kind of justification. It's like, it'll be, a, it'll be cool. It'll look amazing. And it's 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 this hugely performative sense of self, right? This this mm-hmm. this idea that there is no kind of like even at the very end, you kind of like the whole point of a documentary is to get you close to a subject. And as as you kind of go through, there's it's like the camera pushes through all of these layers to to a kind of empty core at the center. And it's like this this piecemeal self, this self that's kind of stitched together out of like anti-communist militarism, uh, virulent nationalism, misogyny, and genre. Yes. And there's so much about the world in which Anwar Congo, um, one of his friends who uh, was also one of the genocidaires, a man named Herman, um, and then Zulkadri, like they all, all three of them, uh, uh, talk about and do things that are highly cinematic. You know, Zulkadri talks about Indonesia as the most corrupt place on the planet and, and talks about how like, like there, there, there's footage of like a political rally and there's hundreds of people gathered in this crowd cheering on candidates. And, and we have Zulkadri's voiceover telling us how like no one is actually there because they care about the people being elected. They're all paid to be there. They're all actors. Mm-hmm. And then we have we have uh, so Herman uh, is running for uh, a local go- a government position in the, in like the housing department, um, and, and specifically he outlines like in one of the most just unnervingly direct moments of the movie. He's like he says something to the effect of like, "Oh, I'll be able I'll be able to do, get a lot of work done here and do a lot if I get this position because in the housing department I'll be able to extort everyone." And it was just just shaking how direct he was about that. But we have we have this moment where he's like. He's 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 in his home and in in the left the left third of the frame we have a TV playing a speech by Barack Obama, and yep. it, American politics are all about theater and presence and performance, and then we have him in the middle trying to emulate Obama's kind of mannerisms and speech patterns, right? To to kind of be like to take on the characteristics of one of the most powerful world leaders, and then on, on the right third of the frame is is his wife sitting there who he like stops his little performance every now and then to just start shouting at her. Yeah. And like, and, all, and, yeah, go, go on, go on. And this is the same guy who like a few scenes earlier is wandering through a marketplace, shaking down terrified Han Chinese uh, businessmen for extortion money to fund a kind of paramilitary event. Like this is the same guy. <laughs> And those military events too. So there, there's there's a youth paramilitary organization called the Panchasila, and they, they wear these kind of like very these bright orange kind of camo print outfits. Um, and there's 
there, there's so many scenes with them because they were, of course, like this, this organization was one of the paramilitary groups that did a lot of the killing during the genocide. And they're still in power today. Of course, the vice president is uh, fully in support. The vice president of Indonesia is fully in support of them. And we have this scene where uh, the Panchasila are reenacting kind of their fervor during these these genocidal killings. Oh and, God, yeah. And th- this this scene was this scene is horrifying. They're 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 just all in uniform with like torches just shouting like cut their heads off cut their hands off bash their skulls in and then the so the vice president's there right vice president of indonesia is taking part of this reenactment and he stomps it and he he addresses joshua oppenheimer and he's like hey this is this is going to make us look crazed and violent and murderous and we're not crazed and violent and murderous and then he pauses for a second and then he says I mean, we have to get rid of the communists no matter what the cost, and we'll do any measure to get there, but we're not violent, crazed, and murderous. Yeah, he even goes, well, 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 we could be, and in fact, we could yes. be even worse. Well, mm-hmm. We could be even worse than this, but you have to make sure that you, this doesn't show us in a bad light, okay? And that that is just so un- unnerving in its cinematic quality. Uh, and that that comes just before another sort of genre moment in the film, which is the war film, which is where they restage uh, a paramilitary attack on a village. Um, the, the one of the phrases that was bandied around a lot in the sixty five sixty six mass killings was exterminate them down to the root. Um, uh, and what this this often meant was uh, entire villages would be burned down. Um, what what did you think about what did you think about that scene where they where they kind of restaged the attack on the village? So one of the things that I find most interesting about that scene is two two things really. So early on in the movie, we get to see Herman and Anwar try and round up extras to be the communist victims in that scene. And like everybody, you you could just see on the faces, everybody they go up to and say, hey, would you like to be a communist victim in our movie? Just the unrelenting terror in their eyes as as they kind of stammer out, oh, no, sorry, I'm like really busy. I can't buy. And, and like, because that is that is the most unnerving thing you could possibly ask someone in this context. And on top of that, uh, at, at the end, at the end of that sequence, uh, there, there's a woman who like faints. Um, but if you if you listen to some interviews with Joshua Oppenheimer, uh, according to all the Indonesians present and the Indonesians who watch this movie, uh, she's not experiencing a fainting. Um, the um, I, I forget the exact word for it, but it roughly translates to a possession. You know, she yeah. she has in that moment become possessed by the weight of history and these unacknowledged ghosts of the past, and they overwhelm her. And, and and that is just just her sheer exhaustion to the point of collapse. And the fact that no one around her can really do anything is just emblematic of the entire context of this film. Yeah, absolutely. Um Yeah, I I, I, I thought that, that that whole sequence where they attack the the attack the village, everything is kind of filmed through fire. Um it's 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 deeply kind of disturbing. Not only because 
you know that this is probably underplaying it for the camera, but um, just just before they start filming, they film a conversation between some of these old guys who are talking about how back in the 60s they would look for 14-year-olds. They'd look for teenage girls um, and, you know, then murder their parents and use them as sexual slaves. And it's the, the this cold recitation of facts juxtaposed with um, this kind of like, oh, it's just pretend is is this dissonance that kind of emerges, right? And it's, it's what makes it... Uh, Haunting is the only word. And, and even that, that is like necessary but insufficient. You know, ha- haunting just scratches the, the, the surface of this. But I think, would you want to talk, if we're talking about hauntings, this, this is also a haunting movie, is one of the genres that Anwar seeks to explore. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there is a scene where... Uh, he he says that he's troubled by bad dreams still. Um, and wh- what do you think? What do you think about that scene? And what do you think about the fact that he's incredibly indirect about addressing what those bad dreams might be for? So I think a lot is really interesting about this. So so in this scene, like Anwar is sleeping, and then he wakes up because a ghost has entered his room. And then we have like this nightmare sequence where he's beheaded and tortured by by his friend Herman, who is dressed in drag. Um, and in every in a lot of scenes uh, leading up to this, like in the first scene where Anwar reenacts one of his killings, he's like smiling and laughing. Um, and in and in this entire sequence, he's like deadpan, it, yeah. deadpan to the point where like his friend Herman is getting frustrated that he can't act the scene. And, and you, you know, we watch them go through multiple takes and he just can't even act afraid in this context. Up until this point, he's enjoyed everything he's done. Well, this is the thing, right? This is, this, is, this is what makes the film just genuinely so masterful, which is that at the beginning, Anwar is kind of wandering around, directing people, you know, giving notes on how to actually torture people. Um, oh, oh, God, which just reminds me of the scene which I found almost impossible to watch, which is where... Uh, the guy is a guy is kind of talking to Anwar and his friends about how his stepfather was murdered and he wasn't allowed to go to school because um, his stepfather was Chinese and he's doing it with this kind of forced smile and there's just palpable terror and but none of it seems to affect Anwar right but then as the film goes on he gets drawn further into the kind of action so there's this haunting scene where he, he doesn't really know what to do he sits through the torture of his, of, and his own kind, kind of quote-unquote beheading and seems mostly annoyed more than anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is this is leading us towards the the end of the film and, and our appraisal of, of kind of our few final scenes with Anwar. But before we get to that, I want to talk about supernatural and sexology, if you don't mind me derailing yeah. us for a second. Yeah, let's do it. So about midway through the movie, roughly, we meet the publishers behind a periodical called Supernatural and Sexology. And these are, it's, it's like a, it's exactly what it says. It's supernatural and kind of stories and studies about human sexual interactions. And at first you wonder why we're here talking to these guys. And then they let it slip that 
Uh, two floors above them is where Anwar did most of his killing. And the floor mm-hmm. above them was the uh, office and headquarters of one of the paramilitary groups that took part in the genocide. And at first, when we first meet these guys, uh, th- so there's the head of the magazine, the head publisher, and and his assistant, who's a journalist, right? And the head publisher is just talking about how, like, like oh, like, you know, he, he knew they were there, but he didn't really know what they were doing. And it's his job as a journalist and an artist to seek the truth. And then we get a scene at the end of the movie where he's talking about how he would be there while they beat and interrogated alleged communists and took whatever they said and spun it to be as, as worse as it could possibly be in order to, one, justify their killings and, two, justify the continued killings of other people. And how he was proud of that because it's his job as a newsman to kind of control this public discourse. And we get a scene with one of his assistants. And this, this for me, I think might have been the single most chilling scene in the movie. Oh, yeah. I know, ex- I know, ex- I know exactly what you're talking about. But yeah, go on. This, this happens immediately after the, the scene you were talking about. Um, but so this guy who's a journalist who worked in this office is talking with Anwar Congo, Herman and Zulkadri, right? These three prominent figures in, in, in this genocide. And, 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 he's, and he's like, yeah, I, I, you know, I had no idea this was happening. You know, I would just, I would come in and I would do my work as a journalist in the office and I would leave and I had no idea that these killings were taking place. In, I mean, in- you, you guys, you guys were on the floor above me and you know how it is when you're in the office. Yeah, like that, that was his attitude with the whole thing. And then like, Zulkadri goes like, that's weird because we never tried to hide any of it. It was all in the open. And, and, and the journalist is just like, oh, no, I, I, never, I never saw anything. I don't know anything. And then Zulkadri is like, huh, weird, because, you know, we were there above you, again, not hiding the killings. And, yeah, and it is like, so... Like, Zulkadri even goes, huh, that seems illogical yeah. to me. That, that doesn't make sense that you'd say, I had no idea this was happening. And, and just just in that moment with with that that journalist speaking, right, you can see this kind of combination of like, he, he, you know, he's he's lying to the world and lying to himself as a way to assuage his conscience. And, and he's also kind of visibly terrified of the company he's in. Yeah. You know, because yeah. it, admitting that he knows something would immediately connect him deeper into that realm and you can tell that that is absolutely shakingly terrifying Mm -hmm. and that that whole that whole scene i was just i i don't know my my teeth are smooth and polished after all the grinding i mean it's so so terrifyingly tense and you see the kind of like like in in some ways i i kind of despise that figure but in some ways i feel uh pity for them because they've trapped themselves in a lie they've told themselves for so long that it's almost impossible for anything to break them out of it and really this film is is basically like what if that but it happened on a national level exactly like like all of these little moments where people are like either out of an unshakable fear or or some kind of psychological self-preservation denying their own past it yeah. is the very nature of this documentary yeah absolutely um th- those scenes with those journalists are g- genuinely chilling um 
and the it's the 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 chief publisher is is uh, Sinek Ibrahim Sinek, um, and you know in one scene he's like oh I just passed along information and then in the next scene he's like <laughs> when he's in when he's with Congo and the rest says oh yeah you know when you were when you were like beating a guy to death I was writing down everything he would say, and it's like honestly ch- chilling. Yeah, and it's it's just, and especially given the context too of like, we we have several uh, dinners and media events inside of the movie with the Indonesian government that celebrate Zukadri, Anwar, and Herman. Right? These are these are national heroes. Yeah. Right. Like they have no reason to hide or flinch about what they've done. Right. Uh, Anwar Congo talks about this. Zukadri talks about this. That you know they won right like winners write the history and this this takes takes me back to like one of my favorite moments in the uh, the jakarta method um and and that's the during uh i think the first chapter where um but so bevins is talking about how uh yes winners do write histories uh but it's the histories of losers are also important we we have so much to learn from the histories of people who have lost conflicts because we are those losers. Um, Howard Zinn touches on this. The entire people's history of the United States of America is a history of the losers of, of the history of the United States of America, right? People who have been uh, on the other end of a lot of these conflicts. And, and there's there's so much to, to gain from exploring that space. Yeah. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And what you see is you gradually see this man uh, who has thought of himself as, as a winner, as an immune, realize that this is not, this is not a kind of natural state of affairs. And um, so, so one of the, one of the, one of the moments which is so interesting is that they, they do the gangster film. They do the kind of fifties noir, right? Everyone's got the suits and the big hats on. And in that scene, uh, Anwar Congo is the suspected communist surrounded by three people, uh, one guy behind a desk and two kind of henchmen goons with uh, wooden planks that they will kind of smash on the back of his legs or smash on the chair to make sure he's paying attention. Um, what, what, do you, what do you think about that scene? I I think that scene is where you can see the change in Anwar's personality and his relationship to everything that's going on in this movie. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's that's where he begins to recognize his own history and not not even like the gravity of what he's done or, or some kind of sympathetic appraisal, but it's 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 haunting to to watch you know and just and not just for anwar himself but for the other people who are just totally okay yeah and and who 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 is okadri and herman who like have zero remorse or reflection or desire to even do that at at one point in the movie zokadri even comments that he's never had a nightmare he's never had a bad night of sleep and that the only time he's ever seen a a psychologist was after he had a stroke yeah. Um, 
that it's 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 really it's really hard to watch because they go through it exactly the way that that um Anwar has has kind of been ad- advising them throughout the whole thing um and you can tell by the end of the scene where they where they blindfold him because this was Anwar Congo's method would be to blindfold his severely beaten victims who had never done anything wrong uh get a a, a spool of wire put it around their neck, tie the other end to a piece of wood and pull on that piece of wood until they were dead. Um, and he he gleefully explains this at the top of the film because this was the way to make sure that there was not so much blood after you'd finished with them and to get rid of the smell. You know, it, it, this was a way of murdering people that was, that was face-to-face but didn't result in an unpleasant smell. And at the end of that scene, uh, Anwar stays in the chair and it looks kind of looks kind of like shaken to the core by it. Um, but the thing that's super interesting is then that you get to watch him re-watch that scene. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think about that? The kind of regular moments where we watch him watching the film. So I think, I think to kind of like highlight what's going on here, I'm going to read a direct quote from Anwar in the film after having watched himself do these reenactments. And it, it goes... Have I sinned? I did this to so many people, Josh. Is it all coming back to me? I really hope it won't. I don't want it to. Yeah. And then then he's like, you know, I I felt I felt so bad and I I suddenly kind of thought about how those people that I did it to would feel and Oppenheimer goes, they would have felt worse because they knew they were going to die. Mm-hmm. They would have felt worse than you did. Uh, it's it's an extraordinarily powerful moment, and it's and it's like if you want to confront somebody with their own guilt, like this is this is putting somebody on trial through the medium of film, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, like this is something I've been thinking about a lot, which is like the the whole point of art, not just not just cinema, but it's something cinema is super good at, is connecting the self with the other, right? Mm-hmm. But literally, literally allowing you to see out of a brand new perspective. Um, and there is something, there is something kind of like morally important about that. I think we both say that that's important, right? It's about, oh, yeah. but it's, but it's also, I think you're right. It's about this, this man has a kind of tiny, a fractional taste of what the potentially thousands of people who died at his hand felt for a second. Just, and he, he only has to feel it for a second. Uh, and he says, and then he asks, have I sinned? I did this to so many people. Is it all coming back to me? I really hope it won't. Do you want to talk about the banality of evil? Yes. Yes. We need to talk about Hannah Arendt and Eichmann in Jerusalem. I think that's very key to understanding this film. So uh, for someone who doesn't know, like, how would you explain the banality of evil uh so so the, this is a book uh entitled eichmann in jerusalem uh by hannah arendt uh the book is about a nazi official who's being tried and it is essentially a deep dive into the kind of granular details of this man's character and how how he's 
expressing himself in the moment of his trial and how he's also connecting back to his own past and what he's done. And the, the, the big, big conclusion kind of, I think to, to come from this is that it's, it's not so, so simplistic as like, Oh, this, uh, this, th- this man who did all these evil things is very banal or it's equally not like, Oh, there, there's a potential for all of us to become an Eichmann in the course of our lives. Um, but, it, but it's that within mundanity itself, right within the the kind of societal systems that we've erected the kind of normal state the banal state of our world has the potential to do this yeah absolutely so it's like it's not it's not that these uh people are kind of uniquely evil right uh the the kind of classic eichmann line is i was just following orders i was just doing what i what i said and I just shuffled paper around and arranged um, train timetables, and it's like, but but you could have said no, you 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 could have refused, you could have, uh, but you ch- but you didn't, um, and it's that banality, the willingness to blindly follow authority, to, um, Frederic uh, Grotz, the the French philosopher, has a really good book called Disobey. Uh, where he talks about that actually giving up the the kind of self uh, conception that allows you to disobey is a kind of recipe for horrors on a kind of global scale, and and you know this is never a question for any of uh, Congo or Congo or his friends. They never go. Well, we could we could have said we could we could have chosen to do something else. We didn't have to spend our time gleefully slaughtering peasants, farmers, trade unionists, students, and foreigners. But they chose to. Yes. And so and so much of like, one thing that was very interesting for me is that there was very little of that uh, I'm just following orders attitude in this film. And largely because like they won. And so Zulkadri and Herman are gleeful about their participation, right? They fully embraced their status as kind of these folk heroes of the government. Mm-hmm. Uh, Zulkadri seems to have a little bit more kind of like self-reflection because at one point he goes, oh, oh we we didn't love it. You know, it was a job. You just, and, and it was unpleasant and you did what you had to do and you got it over with quickly. But there's never never this idea of like actually... We could have chosen to do something else. We could have done something else if we, if if we, you know, that this wasn't the only option for us. Um, because I think to admit that would be like, it would, it would, it would, it would be admitting everything else along with it, right? Oh yeah. So, do you want to talk about the ending of the act of killing? Oh boy, yeah. We um, we probably should, shouldn't we? Um. So, so what do you think? What do, what do you think about how this film ends? Well, how would you, how would you describe it? So there, there's, there, there's a few key scenes that, that kind of happen at the end of this film that I think the way they juxtapose for me is, is just incredibly interesting. So you have 
you, you have kind of like this the, the haunting of Anwar Congo that that happens um you know where he where he's kind of trying to recreate this recurring nightmare he has um and then that is kind of immediately followed by Anwar watching the scenes that he's created and, and kind of having this I, I guess a heart to heart with Joshua Oppenheimer um and then we have uh, a kind of sequence where like uh, Anwar is is back on top of the roof where he's done hundreds and hundreds of killings and and this is this is the roof where we open our film where he's like gleefully uh showing off how you how you like make an impromptu garrote and you kill someone with it and now he's like retching and vomiting and 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 struggling with himself internally but but the movie goes out on a musical number Mm -hmm. um the movie goes out on one of Anwar Congo's favorite songs and it's it's a bunch of beautiful women dancing uh, in front of this beautiful waterfall and we get this we get this just i i have no adjectives for this scene but it's it's two men who are done up like zombies or or freshly freshly buried dead and they have just like you know garrot wire wrapped all around their necks and heads and so they're 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 Anwar's victims, and then one of them places a gold like a gold Olympic medal over Anwar and says, "Thank you for sending us to heaven." Yeah, it it it's 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 uh, honestly it's difficult to try and put it into words, um, but the the born free musical sequence and that um. Anwar retching on the rooftop are are like it, juxtaposition is really important because it, it it demonstrates without explicitly explaining that there is a relationship between those two moments, and it's like Anwar retching on the rooftop is the closest he gets to actually uh, confronting even as a, a smidgen a, a tiny fraction of the genuine horror that he is inflicted upon uh, other human beings. And then you have, it's, it's really surreal because it's shot in these kind of like bright, almost neon colors, you know, look, splashes of pink, bright green and bright blue. And you have Anwar being given this medal by a, by a murdered communist who says, thank you for sending me to heaven. I, 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 what how do you make sense of this so i i don't i mean like i think this is one of those those moments in cinema where there there is no one answer there's no one takeaway and i think that's to this documentary's credit and that's part of its power is that it gives you nothing but a a taste of trauma and a bunch of of conflict to run through in your own mind or to talk about with other people or to do an episode about on your horror movie review podcast. Um, and for me, one of one of the things that I think is just absolutely fundamental to, to kind of these final sequence is this this realization that it's not really about Anwar. You know, we're we're experiencing this through him, but it's ultimately about us collectively and our society and how we experience these things. 
and it's it's kind of I, I think for me like the ending is asking like collectively how do we see ourselves for mm. for the horrible things that our cultures have been responsible for do we see ourselves you know as this kind of like absolutely ghoulish figure where our victims are congratulating us for our terror or are we attempting to move through that space you, you know like this forces self-reflection on the audience and it's at the point of contradiction that something new emerges right mm-hmm. thoughts that i mean this is maybe too hegelian but like thought begins at the point of contradiction when you have those two things smashing into each other this kind of grateful uh murdered communist being sent to heaven by a you know a beatific executioner versus this man who's confronted with the horror of what he's done. It's like, it isn't just about him. You're completely correct, but it's about the wide, like it's an incredibly self-reflexive movie because it turns it back upon ourselves, right? This idea of like a genre film having that kind of cheesy ending, we would be like, Oh yeah, fine, whatever. Uh, Or even having that kind of surreal uh, musical number to close it out on we could write off as, as, as fantasy, but then you're smashed into the real, right? You're smashed into the horror of retching up your own history on the floor and then having to find a way of continuing. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And, and I think like, we, we, we touched on this throughout the episode, but you're, you're a standard version of this documentary, kind of the, the history channel version of this would would have ended with just like a title card that would have said something like Anwar Herman and Zulkadri were never tried for their crimes. Anwar died in 2000, whatever, you know, like it would have just been so dry, but this, this forces us to call into questions about how we talk about the quote unquote third world. Like this, this forces us to talk about how we frame them in movies. Cause at no point does Anwar or does, does Joshua Oppenheimer talk about or frame the people in this as backwards or developing or, or like uh, inherently misguided, you, you know, like, like they're, they're given a flat honesty to be themselves in this moment and detached from the uh, you know, colonialist ways we tend to appraise the third world in cinema. I mean, know? that was, that was exactly how it was spoken about at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the U S and UK press, were one extremely grateful those troublesome communists weren't going to be around anymore and secondly hand waved it all away by going oh by by reaching for the oldest orientalist paternalism of going ah well in a country like indonesia what do you expect but you're Mm -hmm. completely correct oppenheimer never does that um and actually forces a confrontation with with violence as constitutive of modernity yeah yeah and i think part of this too is like in oppenheimer's own conduct you know he is when he's won awards for this he has specifically called out england and america and and their historic involvement in indonesia and their part to play in these horrible events and those are the moments that are cut from his interviews those are the moments that don't make the tv broadcast I mean, it's it's widely thought that this um, film was responsible, and and Oppenheimer uh, and the rest of the team's work was what was uh, at least in part responsible for the declassification of 
uh, a big tranche of documents in 2017 showing that the CIA and American intelligence services knew exactly what was happening, uh, encouraged it, facilitated it. Um, CIA handed over literally uh, tens of thousands of dollars and made sure that the army and paramilitary groups had uh, infrastructure and radio communications networks set up uh, so they could um, coordinate activities over 1,500 islands. Um, and, you know, if it wasn't for uh, people like Oppenheimer constantly raising this, constantly bringing up the issue of culpability and, re- and responsibility, uh, maybe those documents never would have seen the light of day. Absolutely. And I think the only other thing I would add about walking away from this is that I don't, I don't think there's any answer, you know, like I, I don't, I don't think there's any direct and easy solution to, to kind of, you know, letting these dead rest in peace, you know, to, to doing the, the truly hard work of reckoning the, with the ghosts that are with us perpetually. But I think that this movie is an attempt to begin that process you know, I've, I've said on the show before that the, the first step in healing is to reckon with the wound, right? It's, it's to, to do triage and appraise the damage. And that's often the most difficult part because that, that is bringing into your own mind the awareness of culpability and mortality and morality. And that, that process is necessarily a little traumatic, a little painful, um, a little uncertain. And this movie is certainly all of those things. Brilliant. What it, I think that's a great place to end it on. Excellent. Uh, there is there is one last thing that I want to say uh, for our audience out there. Uh, today's episode would not have been possible without the help of a good friend of mine. Uh, so it's got to give a shout out to Chris Nivens is an international American citizen who grew up in Indonesia. His help was vital to our efforts in this episode. Chris was able to give us unique insights, historical information, and sharpen our linguistic abilities. Uh, And I would like to apologize in retrospect for pronouncing things wrong anyway. Uh, Chris is an author writing fantasy uh, with a left perspective. You can keep up with his work on Twitter at Christopher Nivens and on his Patreon page. Uh, Links to all of this will be in the show notes and on the Horror Vanguard Twitter. Amazing. Amazing. Thank you so much, everybody, for taking this uh, journey with us. And we'll see you all next time.